Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please join me in welcoming back Monsignor Charles Pope. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Crux fidelis, arbor una nobilis, of holy and faithful cross, noble beyond all telling. We meditate on the reality today of this holy cross, the cross of Jesus, the wood of the cross, the wood that was the tree of our defeat, and that tree in the garden now becomes the tree of our victory. So we thank you, Lord, for this great and glorious cross, which has become very controversial today. And as we meditate on that reality, help us then to become even more, even more insistent, Lord, on the power, the glory, and the necessity of your cross, without which we perish. We ask all these things, Jesus, in your holy name, you who are Lord forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Okay, thank you. Now, to some degree, you know, the cross has always been controversial. Um... In the early days of the church, I mean, to hold up a cross, a crucifix, a cross, either version was just like, are you crazy? You know, it was an instrument of torture. It was a sign of defeat. It was a sign not just of defeat, but of criminality. And over the centuries, of course, for us as Catholics, the cross has become very, pardon the expression, but sanitized. I mean, we think of it in very holy and religious terms as we should. But you know, in the earliest days, I mean, this is like, well, do you see the boldness of starting out every Mass walking behind an image of the crucified? I mean, we might as well wheel him in in an electric chair or strapped to a gurney with the, with the chemicals being poured into his arm. I mean, or have him hanging from a noose. You say, well, that's irreverent. That's horrifying. What are you doing? This is God. You're talking. And yet that's what we do every Sunday. We, we march in with our Lord nailed to an instrument of torture. And not just any instrument of torture, but an instrument of torture that was related to the worst of criminals. The, the Romans reserved crucifixion for the, the worst of criminals. Even the Jews had a saying, you know, anyone who is hung on a tree or hung from a pole is cursed by God. And that's why Paul said to the, to the Jewish people, the, the, the cross is a stumbling block. When they hear that Christ hung from a cross, they're like, well, that is a... That is right out of our scripture. It means he was cursed by God, not blessed by God. See how humble our Lord is? I mean, he was found among the lowest criminals, crucified in the most lowly and awful ways. You probably are aware of this, but in case you aren't, the word excruciating comes from the Latin expression excruce, which means from the cross. And you know that when the Romans couldn't think of anything worse, they'd just say, ah! Excruce, excruce, which means oh, that's from the cross. You know, and you, you've seen the Passion of the Christ. You know how awful, how awful it was. It was meant to inflict not only the most horrifying uh, physical pain, but also the most horrifying, you know, if you will, contempt for the crucified person. 
And again, it was reserved, even among the Romans, uh, for the most awful of criminals. And yet that's where Christ is found. And we march in proudly. We hang this image from our walls. We kiss the cross. Now that, my brothers and sisters, is very countercultural even to this day, and it is very paradoxical. So today I want to particularly emphasize the paradox of the cross and maybe also help you to see part of the reason that we are in the kind of cultural battle that we're in. It really does come down to that crooks, the crux of the matter, the crooks, the, the cross of the matter, really is this question. Is the cross a valid thing for the church to hold up today? Or should we just you know, make all kinds of accommodations to a culture that's become used to comfort, that's become used to kindness, and a kind of a love that's very amorphous and makes no demands. See, it's really the real, if you pardon the expression, but the crux of the matter. And again, you know the Latin word for cross is crux. So the, we say it in English, crux. The crux of the matter, the cross, the place where the, the two different positions come together is right there. In the cross. And I would say to you that the cross has always been controversial, but in a way, in our culture today, has never been more controversial before. So let's begin by just talking about, a little bit about the word paradox. As you probably know, but in case you don't, the word paradox, it has several different meanings, uh, but they're related. First of all, let's just look at the Greek root of it, para plus dokein, right? So para means kind of like off to the side. You've heard of like a parallel universe, right? You know, parallel universes aren't identical. They're, they're sort of like mirror images. Remember that Star Trek episode where Kirk beams into the wrong enterprise and the parallel universe and everything's different, right? Spock is a warlord and all kinds of crazy stuff. In that sense, para meaning off to the side, different. And then dokein meaning to think or to seem. So a paradox is something that is contrary to or off to the side or different from the common way of thinking. Now, uh, just, just, let's just start with the cross for a minute. You know, how many of you know who Cecil B. DeMille is? Because I'm getting old. <laughs> I mean, okay, I see just the older folks. <laughs> you know, he was this one who, who did these big epic Hollywood movies. A lot of them were biblical themes, and some of them were related to biblical themes like Ben-Hur, and some of them were not biblical at all. But you get the he always, big epic sets and heroic, you know, things. And, you know, if I'm going to save the world, if I'm God, and aren't you glad I'm not, praise the Lord, all right? Come on, somebody say, praise the Lord, all right? But if I were God, here's how I would save the world. I'd ride down on a lightning bolt. I'd say, I'm here, I'm in charge, fear me, and obey now, that's how I save the world. <clears throat> and in, in a way, I force you to believe. Right? Now, I'm not going to get into a whole theology here of why the Lord didn't do it that way. I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. But isn't that the normal way in our world today? Well, our world is governed by the aggressive use of power and force. That's how you solve things. If someone is violent, you bring in more violence. You yell, if someone is loud, you yell louder! If, if there is, an, you know, if there is you know, again, some kind of you know, abuse of power, you gather more power. And that's, that's how we solve things in our world. That's the common way of thinking. Now, I'm not here to say 
that there's never a place for the aggressive use of power. I mean, there is a just war tradition, but we live in a very fallen world governed by a fallen angel, and we have fallen natures. I'm not here to say that all war is to be excluded, but I'm just going to say to you that the normal God's way of handling these things is not our way. He did not ride down on a lightning bolt. He was born in a very dumpy little town, and it's dumpy till this day. It's a very poor little town called Bethlehem. And he wasn't just born in any place in Bethlehem. He was born in the lowest place in Bethlehem, down in a stinking cave with animal dung nearby. He was born in poverty. He was not born in a palace. He was born almost unnoticed, kind of a stealthy invasion behind enemy lines. Amen? But, but there he is. And he lived in a very hidden place. Nazareth, what good can come from Nazareth? To quote the Bible, come and see. 30 years? Maybe, we don't know for sure, but probably working as a builder and a carpenter? What a waste of time! Where's the lightning bolt? We're in trouble down here. Flex your muscles and beat up a few people. Even John the Baptist might have been a little discouraged. It's hard to interpret, but John was expecting, you know, the axe being laid to the root of the tree and his winnowing fork is in his hand and, you know, he's going to burn the wicked in fire and gather the just into the kingdom. John the Baptist had this idea, right? This is how God will solve the problem. You take our big in egos and the big sinful ego of Satan and you just come in with a bigger ego and you dominate and you ride down on that lightning bolt and that's how you solve these problems. And Jesus didn't do that. And only for three years of his short life, he worked a few miracles in a very tiny remote area called Galilee. I mean, you know the people in Jerusalem look down their noses at the people in Galilee, right? You know that they had a heck accent in Galilee. Didn't you know that? They, they, I'm serious. I mean, they, they, Jesus had a hick accent because the people in Jerusalem recognized the Galileans by their accent and they looked down, they looked down at them because of that. They said, you know, these people aren't so bright. You know, we, we do that kind of stuff, right? See? So again, uh, see how humble our Lord was. And then, at the culmination of the battle, he throws down his weapons, and is nailed to a cross and dies. Now that is paradox. That is not the worldly way of thinking. My ways are not your ways, says the Lord. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, my, my thoughts are above yours. As high as, you know, the, the, my ways are not your ways. Somebody say amen. I mean, and listen, it continues. You have questions in your heart today. Where are you, God, when 21 men have their heads cut off? Where are you when all this stuff is going on and you're up there in heaven and nothing, and you let it all kind of go on and, you know? So the questions remain. These are very serious questions. Now, I'm going to try to address some of this in a moment, but let's just say this. Let me, let me at least address this idea. Why didn't God ride down on the lightning bolt? Why didn't he follow the Cecil B. DeMille approach and ride down dramatically, shock us into submission? And Well... All I know is this, God is after lovers, sons and daughters, if you will, not slaves. And you can enslave people in different ways. Sometimes you can just overpower them, and sometimes you can just cause them to be so afraid of you that you'll do, they'll do anything you say. 
Now, is that a lover? Or is that a slave? And you see, the Lord, apparently our yes, which requires our freedom, is so precious to God that He's willing to risk many people saying no, even if just some will say yes. You know that a third of the angels fell. Whoever God gives freedom to, some percentage of them just abuse it. But so precious is that reality to God of our freedom that He doesn't force it. He doesn't yell and overpower and scream and force and you know, dominate. Who does that? The devil. The devil does that. The devil uses fear. He's loud. He's proud. He's in the media. He's in the music. He's everywhere. And the still, small voice of God is whispering. Now you're saying, bad marketing, Lord. <laughs> and the Lord says, I respect you. Pardon me for putting it this way, but the Lord is saying, I will not rape you. I will not abuse you. I will whisper, I will invite, and I will respect your final decision. And that's why there's a hell, by the way. That's how serious God is about our freedom. But this is paradox, right? This is not how we run the world. We run the world through the use of power, through overwhelming means. And we fight evil, with, or if you will, with greater power, you see, in all these things. But the Lord very different. And that's what we mean by paradox. So paradox means something that is off, para in Greek meaning off to the side, like where we get the word parallel, right? A line that's off to the side. Para meaning off to the side, and dochein meaning to think or to seem. And so paradox are those things that seem different than the normal way of thinking. Now, at, at the level of paradox, then, regarding the cross, we can look at some paradoxes some of which are just, what, what, I, what I might call, let me call, let me distinguish two kinds of paradox. I'm going to call them just a puzzled paradox. That's the kind where you scratch your head and say, that is kind of strange, isn't it? And then there's the polemical paradox. That it's a paradox that's so contrary, it makes people mad. It makes people mad. And, um, and that's, we're going to see where we're kind of heading in our culture right now. But let me just, let's look at the cross from a few different angles and look at some of the paradox. Again, first of all, historically, the paradox, that is to say, that which is contrary to the common way of thinking, the paradox historically was that the cross was an instrument of torture, of death, of defeat. And if you, if you look at it from a worldly, normal way of thinking kind of point of view, the worldly way of thinking, I mean, normal, not, I mean talking statistical normal here now, not normality normal, okay, all right. But his, to, the, to the world's eyes, the cross is an instrument of torture, of death, and of total defeat. But you put on your eyes, you put on your glasses of faith, what is the cross? It's the tree, the tree of our defeat becomes the tree where Christ conquers. It's the tree of our victory. Weakness becomes strength, and defeat is victory. By dying, he destroyed our death, and by rising, he restored our life. Let me ask you to ponder with me again God's methodology here, just so you say, well, it's not just entirely crazy if you have faith. That's why you've got to put your faith glasses on to hear what I'm about to say or to see what I'm about to, to give you. I'm going to use Martin Luther King, a quote by him, Dr. King, and I'm going to adapt it and add something to it. By the way, King said he got it from Gandhi, and Gandhi said he got it from Jesus. It goes like this. 
Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Likewise, hatred cannot drive out hatred. Only love can do that. And I would add, pride cannot drive out pride. Only humility can do that. So why is he on this cross? How do you conquer hatred? With love. How do you conquer darkness? See, with light. But even more so, how do you conquer pride? With humility. Our refusal to obey God for no good reason. He'd given us everything. Adam and Eve had given everything. And this satanic person comes and speaks to them who's given them nothing and says, he's lying to you. Oh, I guess he is. The Bible, or the, I'm sorry, the catechism says that man let his trust in his creator die in his heart and abusing his freedom, he sinned against God who had given him everything. Ingratitude, a lack of trust, and we obeyed a slithering snake of, a, of, of, of Satan instead of the God who loved us. Pride with a colossal P. And likewise, Satan himself, I will not serve. Satan in his pride thinks he, he knows better than God and, and he fell from heaven. So how do you conquer pride? Humility. Right? But this is paradoxical, isn't it? In our world, the way you conquer pride is by having a bigger ego. How do you handle a bully? Pop him! And then he'll go away. And that's the world's way of thinking. But it's not God's. And that's what we mean by paradox. So historically, the cross is paradoxical because in it, if you will, what was an instrument of torture, death, and defeat becomes now a place of victory, of strength, and, if you will, of complete victory uh, in Jesus Christ. Now, symbolically, it was a sign of high crime. When, a, when an ancient person saw a Someone on a cross, they said, well, no, that's a real criminal. We look and we see a holy person. We see holiness. And so, again, the paradox for us who put on our glasses of faith, an ancient person would just say, well, he must have been a bad criminal. He must have murdered. He must have been a seditionist. He must have been involved in some pretty serious stuff because they went to all that trouble to nail him to a cross. And we look and we see a man who's innocent, who's holy, and that's paradox. Effectively, it's a paradox because it's by suffering that healing is affected. We always want to put oil in wounds. St. Catherine of Siena said, it's time for the church to stop putting oil in everybody's wounds and to use a little bit of hot iron and cauterize a few wounds. She was no shrinking violet. St. <laughs> Catherine of Siena was a woman for our time. Oh, oh, we need to be nice and make it all more pleasant. Well, there is a place for that, right? There's a time to use oil to soothe wounds. There's also a time to use a hot iron to cauterize. Are you praying with me? Okay. So again, effectively, though, it's by this that we're healed. Not by some pleasantry or a pat on the hand or some sort of you know, lesser, nicer thing. That horrifying suffering brings us healing. And by the way, it's not just what Jesus went through. He said, you've got to go through some of that too. You've got to take up your cross. But Lord, that's not nice. That's not kind. That's not oil. That sounds like a hot iron. Yeah. And that's paradox, right? 
Unsettlingly, in a world dominated by power and the aggressive use of power, the humility and the power of the cross, accomplishing anything but defeat, both surprises and upsets the normal worldly order. This is very upsetting to the worldly order. This does not compute. This is not how you handle things. Okay, so that's paradox in terms of it's unsettlingly a paradox. And finally, resistantly, and I'm going to get into this in a moment now, no matter how long the evidence for the cross, how enduring its legacy, the world still strongly rejects its message. And you will only accept the cross in the most abstract sense. But you make the cross real in someone's life, and they will not just say, that's kind of strange. They're going to say, you're immoral, you're a bad person, you're mean, you're ugly, you're nasty, because you're suggesting something that hurts. Now we're going to get into that in more detail in a minute. So paradox. So there's two kinds of paradox. One is just that it's a little puzzling kind of paradox. It isn't quite, that's not the usual way of thinking. And we can just make light of it and say, well, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. But then there's the, what we might call the polemical paradox, where this starts to bring in, you do an action, you're going to get a reaction. And we're getting it today. We're getting it today. Because I'm going to tell you right now, the Catholic Church and you know, when I say Catholic here, I don't mean just Roman Catholic. I mean all of our Uniate churches. Amen, brothers. All right. We're the only thing left really holding this up. Everyone else has put a big fluffy pillow and said that's the way. And we're still doing this. And it makes people mad. And we're, in, we're encountering that now. Okay? So, all right. A few scriptures just to remind you, because even in, Paul, even in the time of the New Testament, this was already underway. People were like, are you crazy? So Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you're familiar with these passages. Catholics know the Bible. If you go to Mass, you hear four readings. See, You know the Bible. I could start almost any passage and say, yeah, I've heard it. Don't you let anybody tell you you don't know the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 and following. The message of the cross is absurdity, absurdity to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence, the intelligence of the intelligence. I will frustrate, says the Lord. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God, by the way, apparently Paul didn't get the memo <laughs> that you're not supposed to preach like this. Right? Okay. <laughs> Supposed to be nice and inclusive. <laughs> Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since the wisdom of God, uh, for, for since in the wisdom of the God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. And God was then pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who do believe. But Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. Again, for the reasons stated, right? Anyone hung on a pole is cursed by God, right? And the, the, so the, the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews and utter absurdity to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, it is, the cross is the Christ, is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And the foolishness of God is wiser than wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. If someone calls you a fool, say thank you. At least add, though, that I am a fool for Christ. <laughs> <All right>. Okay. <clears throat> Some of the great desert fathers in the Eastern tradition would have that on their gravestone, right? Fool for Christ. All right. Matthew 16, 
just to show you, even within the church, there's struggles. And even at the highest levels, there can be struggles with the cross. Matthew 16. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but you think in human categories. Paradox, right? You're using worldly thinking. It is not the way I think or act. And then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple, pay attention, he's getting ready to step on your toes now. Oh, Peter, come on, Peter, you really got out of line there. Careful, he's coming after you now. Jesus said to his disciples, anyone who wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life better be ready to lose it. And whoever loses his life for me will find it. Paradox. He just stepped on your pleasure. He said, maybe not all your pleasure is good for you. Maybe you better be ready to pick up a cross. He's getting personal now. Pay attention. But it's still abstract. Wait till I get a little more concrete. <laughs> On the cross, Jesus is dying, and those who passed by, this is Matthew 27 I'm quoting from, those who passed by hurled insults at Jesus, shaking their heads and saying, you are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. <laughs> now save yourself. Come down from that cross if you're the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the, elders, uh, of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, but he can't even save himself. He says he's the king of Israel. Come down from that cross and we will believe in you. That's the world's demand. Come down. Get rid of that thing and we're with you. Get rid of that cross and we're with you. Otherwise, consider yourself dismissed. That's where we are today. That's where we are today. And I will say, sadly, some Christian denominations, I'm thinking of some of the mainline Protestant churches, have been willing to take down that cross and give the people what they want. Very few of us are left holding up that cross. Hard work. And you will be ridiculed. You will be yelled at. You will be called names. You will be called intense, sensitive. You will be called intolerant. You'll be called bigoted. You'll be called homophobic. You will be called, you know, mean, hateful. You will be called these names if you hold up this cross. And many people say, I can't handle it. Let's find, go find the pillow. Give the people what they want. They want gay marriage, give it to them. They want... You name it. They want euthanasia. They want abortion on demand with no rebukes from the pulpit. They've got it. By the way, church, those churches are emptier than ours. Okay. Don't let anyone tell you that's the way we've got to go. I mean, if, if we want to get the numbers up, let's put it that way. Huh? All right. St. Paul laments in Philippians 3, I have often told you before, and I tell you now with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their belly. Uh-oh. <laughs> their God is their belly. Their glory, they glory in their shame. They actually glory in shameful things, right? What used to be not done in the back alley is now promenaded in the St. Patrick's parades and so on, right? I mean, we've got to... It's just, it becomes very, very serious. Now, people are proud. Proud 
of their, quote, lifestyles. And I'm not just here singling out the homosexual community. People live in fornication openly. People proudly commit euthanasia. People proudly go to abortion clinics. Proudly. You see the vision here, right? Paul is shaking his head. He's got tears in his eyes. Enemies of the cross of Christ. Hmm? Enemies. Their mind is set on earthly things, and they think in earthly ways. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is the last quote from Scripture I'm going to give for now. Um, Paul then finally resolves, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not, with, were not the wise and persuasive words that people want, but they were given with the demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human eloquence, but on the power of God. The person without the Spirit will not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolish and cannot understand because they can only be discerned through a spiritual mind. Well, brethren, why have I gone through all this with you? Because I'm telling you right now that we are in a great cultural battle. And um, it really does come down to the cross. It really does come down to it. It's, it's basically the way to describe the dividing line between a culture that simply has lost its way and the way back. So let me... Um, Let's begin now to, I, I want to uh, kind, of set, uh, kind of describe the kind of the setting of the culture and what happens when we hold up the cross. You see, the essential, let me, uh, what, what is the essential then, what is the basic problem that sets us in the church at odds with our current culture? Well, let me first of all say historically, by the way, we haven't moved, but the culture has. We've, we're sort of where we've always been. Uh, a couple of quick disclaimers and then I'll get into the meat of the problem. Some people say, well, the church needs to stay up with the times. The church needs to uh, find out. In fact, even, even the people in the pews don't accept what the church teaches. The church needs to take a few polls, find out what their members think, and reflect that. <laughs> Brethren, that is not the job of the church. The job of the church is not to reflect the views of her members. The, jo the job of the church is to reflect the views of her founder and head, Jesus Christ. Are you clear on that? Because an awful lot of problems today come down to ecclesiology. People fundamentally misunderstand the nature of the church. The church is not a clubhouse. The church is a lighthouse. The church is meant to announce the truth of Jesus Christ. And as St. Paul says, those truths go in season and out of season. And what did he tell Timothy? Hey, when it's out of season, change your message. That's not what he said. <laughs> Timothy, preach the word. Preach it in season and out of season. Do your duty as an evangelist. Your duty is to die if necessary announcing this truth. See? And that's where we are as a church today. We have not moved. The culture has changed. And I, we have to take some responsibility. It happened on our watch. I'm 53 now. I cannot just say, oh, well, you know, these older people really gave me a messed up world. I've been here 53 years. I've been 25 a priest. And if things are in rough shape, I've got to take some responsibility, right? And so do we. Some of us have been too quiet. Some of us have just said, ooh, I guess it must be so. <laughs> Instead of saying, what are you talking about? Now, I don't mean to say we've got to be ugly and mean and nasty. But we do have to be clear. That is not the mind of God. If you're a parent, when was the last time you walked into your 
living room, and if, I hope you don't even own a TV, but if you do, and the TV was on, and your kids were watching some dumb thing, you said, that is not the mind of God. Turn that off. I need to talk to you. We just kind of let it go on, right? Now, I don't mean all of us, in, you know, but I'm thinking collectively, right? We've gone on too long now. Just kind of floating downstream. As Fulton Sheen used to say, dead bodies float downstream. It takes a live body to resist the current. Make sure your faith is alive. Okay. So the church has not moved. The culture has. One other quick disclaimer, and then I'm going to get into sort of setting where we are today. All the way back in 1951, this is very early now, C.S. Lewis in Europe said, Europe has lost the faith. Now here in America, we're thinking, halcyon days, man, the churches are packed. You know, our schools are, our schools are, are packed. Uh, you know, you've got to be on the waiting list. Some of the Polish churches in Chicago in 1961, I mean, in 1951 had 20,000 members. Credit unions, skating rinks, you know, seven-story schools with, you know, thousands of kids. We were, we were cranking it out like a factory. But in 1951, already in Europe, the faith had largely collapsed. And C.S. Lewis said, he was writing to a priest, and this, the, by the way, it's a great book. You've got to read it if you never read it. The Latin Letters of C.S. Lewis. There's a Latin on one side, but there is an English. You can cheat. <laughs> but he, he was writing to a priest in Italy, and the priest didn't write in English, and he couldn't write in Italian. So like any educated man in 1951, they both knew Latin <laughs> and Greek. <laughs> so he wrote in Latin, and the priest wrote back in Latin. But in those Latin letters, C.S. Lewis says, Many people say, today say that the church or the, that Europe has gone back to paganism. He says, I wish we were back to paganism. But we're not even that good off. We're not even that well off. He said, because at least the pagans believed in a higher authority. They believed in the gods. They didn't always have the right ideas, but at least they believed in higher powers that they had to answer to. And they believed in natural law. He said, and this is 1951. In Europe, none of that is believed today. They've they already trended toward atheism and a complete rejection of natural law. And that was 51. And that trickled down and it came to America and it's full bloom now. It's where we are today. I'm just trying to show you that this is a, a problem that's come upon us in the last century. It's hard to argue that the last century was anything but satanic. I think the last century, that tainted century, solitary votes is the civil rights movement. Otherwise, everything else, almost complete disaster. World wars, abortion on demand, you know, no-fault divorce, you know, as I said, two world wars, all those, all those terrible destruction of all those things that went on in Europe behind the Iron Curtain, hundreds of millions who were put to death for ideological purposes, a complete bloodbath. And we are reeling from the effects of that century, and here we are today. And yet in the midst of all of it, we've sort of fallen into a kind of a softness. And we now live in a culture that I would say is, in one word, hedonistic. The key word, I think, to understand our culture today is hedonism. Now, most of you hear the word hedonism, you think of orgies, you think of, you know, extreme, excessive. But I'm going to the Greek meaning of the word hedonism. Hedonian Greek just simply means, um, again, let me, let me just go through my notes here, and, and I want to stay close to my notes because I see the clock ticking away. The essential philosophical stance of the world today, the modern world in the West, is hedonism. The indignation of the modern world against the cross borders on outrage. Why this? 
Why this outrage? Simply put, hedonism. Hedonism is the worldly doctrine, I'm putting that in quotes, that pleasure or happiness is the sole or chief good in life. And it comes from the Greek word hedone, which means pleasure. It's akin to the Greek word hedis, meaning sweet. So again, let's be clear. Hedonism is the doctrine. And I put doctrine in quotes because we think doctrine in the Catholic Church is something that's true, right? I only mean here, this is a worldly insistence. This is, this is rock solid. You've got to base everything on this, all right? It's, it's an error, but to them it's a doctrine, okay? It has the same force of a doctrine. Again, hedonism is the doctrine that pleasure or happiness is the sole and chief goal of human existence. All right. Now, of course, pleasure is, a, is to be desired. Pleasure is to be desired, and to some degree sought. But it's not the sole good in life. I'm already stepping on some toes in this world. What do you mean it's not the sole good in life? Right? Indeed, some of our greatest goods and accomplishments do require sacrifice. Years of study, preparation for careers, blood, sweat, and tears of raising children. All of those things. But hedonism seeks to avoid sacrifice and suffering at almost all cost. Hedonism is directly opposed to the theology of the cross. St. Paul spoke of, them, of many people, we already read it, as being enemies of the cross of Christ. Enemies. And hedonism is the mortal enemy of a theology of the cross. Well, things have not changed, my friend. When Paul said, their God is their belly, and they live as enemies of the cross of Christ, things have not changed, my friends, and they've gotten worse. And thus the world reacts with great indignation whenever the cross or suffering is even implied. The world will cry out with a bewildered exasperation and ask questions like this. Now, here notice again, we're no longer talking about the cross in abstract. Listen to how particular the cross can get. And these are Catholic teachings where the cross becomes no more abstract and it comes right down for a landing. And the world cries out with not just, hmm, that's a kind of a strange teaching you have. They cry out with indignation, with wrath and with anger. And they say, are you saying that a poor woman who was raped needs to carry that child to a term, to in other words, to birth, and can't abort that child? Are you saying that? Yes, we are. We are saying that. That child did nothing wrong. Outrageous! You see, you're not just, kind of, that's kind of strange. You're like bad. You're immoral. You're a bad person for thinking that. See? That's where hedonism crashes into the cross. See? My pleasure, my happiness, my comfort must eclipse duties, responsibilities to other people. For example, a child in the womb. It has to go because it interferes with my happiness. Another question. Are you saying that two gay people who are in love can never marry and uh, their gay lover and that they must live celibately? Yes, we are. By the way, I'm celibate and I love it. I'm, it's a wonderful way to live. and I, I'm, I esteem all of you who are married, but celibacy is beautiful too. I've been doing it for... 25, actually more like 30 years. I mean, I, I really, when I entered the seminary, I figured, well, this is it, man. <laughs> I formally squared it, you know, 26 years ago when I became a deacon. I've been faithful ever since. I've never fallen, not even once. And I, I'm boasting. I'm just saying God's been good to me. And I'm happy. I'm fulfilled. But again, I'm just going to say, 
the world reacts with indignation that you would dare suggest or ever even think of getting between two other people's happiness by saying they should live in a sacrificial way because that is what God asks. Again, let's get to We're bringing the cross down for a landing again. Are you saying that handicapped child in the womb must be, quote, condemned to live in the world as a handicapped and cannot be aborted and put out of his, namely our, misery? Yes, we are saying that. We are saying that, yes. And you know what? An awful lot of Catholics aren't willing to say, yes, that's what we're saying. We've got to stop being ashamed of holding up the cross. We've got to reacquaint people with the cross. This is the cross. This is hard. It is not easy. It is not comfortable. It is not a pillow. It is paradoxical. It's hard. And it saves you. Are you saying that a dying person in pain cannot be euthanized to avoid the pain? Yes, that's right. We are saying that. By the way, use painkillers and so on, but at the end of the day, no, you cannot just take your life to avoid suffering you'd prefer not to have. No, you cannot. Your life does not belong to you. How many of you have seen loved ones on their deathbed and walk with them maybe for years? And would you agree with me? I saw my grandmother and I saw my father die after long illnesses. Some of the most important things that happened in their life were on that deathbed. Some of the greatest work of holiness happened in those last six months. But to a world that reacts with outrage, with shock, with anger and indignation, I tell you, I tell you, this is where the cross becomes very paradoxical, and this is the crux of the battle. It's right there. Hedonism versus the cross. The shock expressed in questions like these four that I just gave you by way of example, the shock expressed by them shows how deeply hedonism has infected the modern mind. Most, the, by the way, so, some decades ago, people would not have reacted this way. They would have said, that's right, we, we can't have people having abortions. We, we, we can't have people, gay marriage, what are you talking about? We, you know, we can't have that. You know, so again, see, there's been a real change here, but this is where we are today. The concept of the cross is not only absurd to the modern world, it is downright immoral. Now, pardon my anger, I'm just trying to illustrate to you, but you know, there's a lot of anger directed right now at the church. See? The anger. Because this goes against a doctrine that pleasure and the avoidance of pain is the chief and sole thing that we should do in life. That's the whole point of life. Pleasure is the point of life. That's hedonism. All right. To the hedonistic mentality, it sees pleasure as the only true human good. It is immoral to that mind. To the hedonist, a life without enough pleasure is a life not worth living. And anyone who would seek to set limits on the lawful and sometimes unlawful pleasures of others is a mean person, is a hateful person, is an absurd person, is an obtuse person, is an intolerant person, and just plain evil. Okay. When pleasure is life's only goal, how dare you in the church or anyone seek to set limits on what I find pleasurable. You must be banished. You must be silenced. You must be destroyed. Now, that may sound excessive, but that's where we're heading. That's where we're heading. Indeed, though, I want to say before we talk more about the world, let's come back into the church for a minute. Even in the church, many faithful Catholics are deeply infected with the illusion of hedonism. 
And so they take up the voice of bewilderment and anger and scoffing whenever the church points to the cross or insists on self-denial. And not in just an abstract sense, but in a very real sense. Whenever the church says we need to make sacrifices, we need to do right, things that are right, even when the cost is great and it's hard to do it, we still need to do it. People in the pews. The head-wagging in congregations is often visible if the priest dares to mention abortion, euthanasia, in vitro fertilization, contraception, and so forth. We, uh, these things are wrong and they should be set aside regardless of the cross, is what the church says. But if the priest preaches about the reality of the cross, some of the head-wagging in the congregation, every priest will tell you they've had people get up and walk out. There are people who react, letters go to the bishop, there's indignation, and so on. It goes on and on. It's right inside our churches. Hedonism makes the central Christian mystery of the cross and redemptive suffering seem to be like a distant planet or a strange parallel universe. And that's where we are today. The opening words of Jesus' mouth today in the gospel was what? Have, have a nice day! What was the opening word in Jesus? The very opening word of his ministry. What was it? It was in the gospel today. Repent. Repent. Apparently Jesus did not get the memo. That's hard, and you don't want to ask people to do things that are hard, and people want to be pleased and have their ears tickled. Now, Jesus, come on now. People don't come to church to hear that kind of stuff. They come to be encouraged. We'll always attract more flies with honey than vinegar, Jesus. And so the pressure is often on priests and other leaders to say, don't talk about that hard stuff. Abstractions, generalities, be nice. And, now, look, if all we do is talk about and bang our fist, and we're, well, that's a different matter, but... We need to have that balance because he said repent and then you know, believe the good news. Brothers and sisters, if you don't know the bad news, the good news is no news. You know, you got to get hold of the bad news. That's why he says repent first. And once you say, you know, and by the way, repent doesn't just mean clean up your act. It means metanoia means to come to a new mind. Think differently. Don't embrace the paradox. See? Don't just think like the world thinks. Metanoia te. Come to a new mind. Change the way you think. That's what he's shouting, see? That's why I'm shouting. So, uh, and, and, and when you start to do that, you will see the good news in what looks like bad news. But you've got to get a hold of the bad news or the good news is no news. Well, I've got to wrap it up for today. By the way, this is part one of the talk. It's kind of the heavy stuff, okay? Uh, next week, I'm going to talk about the power of the cross, but we've got to get in touch with the fact that if you want to find out what's really going on in our culture today and why we're in such a collision course and what the real solution has to be for us is the cross. It's hedonism versus the cross. And so I think then our stage or what we have to do as a church is reacquaint people, starting with ourselves in our own congregations, with the cross. Now, by the way, back in the 70s when I was a teenager, it was the age of crossless Christianity. Remember, we, to we tore down all the crucifixes and we put up these no sweat Jesus up there. He was up there with his hands like he just scored a touchdown, you know, sort of floating in midair and, you know. Beware of crossless Christianity. It is a lie. It's a lie. At the heart of our Christian faith is the cross. But not the cross is just some horrifying thing, but this is the love of God, the mercy of God, the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God. And it hurts to look at it. And we have to accept that that's, what our, that's the, also the ugly reality of our sin. We've got to get in touch with this. And we've got to stare it right in the face. 
And we can't let it become an abstraction. The cross is about some of the things I said. It's about going to your child and saying, no, you cannot live with your girlfriend. It's about embracing and telling people they've got to do hard things because it's the right thing. But we've got to reacquaint people. There's another huge issue, and I guess I'm saying my time is zero now. I haven't got my zero yet. I haven't quite seen my zero yet back there. Like that. Okay. But there's another huge, let me just maybe another way of illustrating the problem. There has been a huge confusion today by equating love with kindness. Now, okay, fine. Um, the, um, um, kindness is an aspect of love. When you love people, you're, you're going to be kind to them. But kindness is only one aspect of love. Kindness is an aspect of love. It is not the equation of love. Kindness is an aspect of love, but so is rebuke. So is punishment. So is encouragement. Love has many aspects. It's a many-splendored thing. <laughs> but it, it, take a parent. Do they really love their kid if they never punish them? Or never say this far but no further? And if you do that, you'll be punished? I mean, true love doesn't just, isn't just kind. Love sometimes is hard. It demands and asks the hard things. If you, if you love your kid, tomorrow morning, whether they like it or not, maybe they'll be silly and cancel the schools again. <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> but, um, but you're going to get them up at 7. They say, but mom, I'd rather sleep in. Too bad. You're getting up. Okay? And that's love. That is not hate. But you see, we live in a world today that has largely said, oh, but Jesus was kind. And you're not. <laughs> and, and God is love. And see, what they're doing is they're equating love and kindness. Now, there is a time and a place to be kind, and part of love is being kind. But Jesus, the same Jesus who said, blessed are you, also said, woe to you. Jesus warned about hell a lot. And he also consoled the suffering. See? Because love is a many-splendored thing. But you see, in our world today, which has become very soft, we think that kindness is the same thing as love, and that love is kindness, and kindness is love. Love sometimes is hard. John, a story about Pope John Paul. Back when he first came, when did he come to the States the first time? Was it 78 or 9? It was very early in his pontificate, and a very radicalized nun stood up, and she just laid out the list. You know you're going to alienate women. You have lost women in this country until you support abortion on demand, ordain women, you know, etc. She had the list, the list. And Pope John Paul stood and listened. And then in sort of his broken English, he goes, I love you too much to lie to you. Love is sometimes hard. Love sometimes has to ask hard things. Sometimes a parent who loves a child has to punish a child and set demands and expectations. And they also have to be kind and they have to console. And somewhere we've lost our way because we live in a hedonistic culture. And the remedy for all of this, right here. Because this is not just an instrument of torture. This is also a sign of love. A God who came to get into trouble with us, who knows our pain, knows our suffering. And I don't, I'm not here to give you a whole theology of suffering. I'll, I'll do that a little more next week, all right? But at the end of the day, the Lord has said, this is the way. This is the medicine. 
this is a solution. It's not going to be the easy way. I didn't tell you to take up your pillow and follow me. <laughs> your pillow will not help you here. Take up your cross and follow me. And I say this to you, says the Lord, because I love you. Now, people have tried to re rework Jesus. Most people today, in, out in the world anyway, have a false Jesus in mind, not the Jesus of Scripture. Jesus never hesitated to comfort the afflicted, but he never hesitated to afflict the comfortable. And we're all in both categories. It's not like, oh yeah, those Pharisees, he really laid them out. Guess what? We're Pharisees sometimes. We do that. And the Lord didn't just lay out the Pharisees. He put some pretty demanding stuff when he spoke to the crowd. Anytime you see a reference in the Bible that a big crowd was following Jesus, fasten your seatbelts because a hard saying is coming. One day a large crowd was following Jesus and he turned on them and said, if any one of you will not take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of my, being my disciples. He turned on them. Another crowd was following him and he said, I am the bread of life. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood, or you have no life in you. And they reacted with indignation. How can this man give us, this talk is hard to endure. And then he left him and would no longer follow him. Another day a large crowd followed him and he turned on them and said, they, they asked him a question. May a man divorce his wife for any reason whatever? He says, haven't you read what the Bible said? Or how, how God set up marriage? That a man should cling to his wife. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And many of his own disciples says, if I've got to stay married to the same woman, it is better never to marry. <laughs> that wasn't just Pharisees he was laying out, right? That wasn't just, you know, those were ordinary folks who had to hear a hard word from him sometime. And he also, it also says the common people heard him gladly. They loved him. They knew he loved them. So in the context of love, we have to recover the cross. And part of our job then, and the solution to this horrifying meltdown of our culture, which is basically rooted in the hedonistic you know, struggle. And but there's a whole bunch of others. Someday I'll come back and I, I wrote a, an article where I had 12, 12 you know, problems in our culture today, you know, you know, the, uh, you know, philosophical problems that are in our culture. But at the heart of it is this problem of hedonism. And the solution has to be the medicine of the cross, right? A vigorous love. A hard love, but a vigorous love. A love that really heals. That doesn't just pour oil in wounds. It will do that, but will also sometimes cauterize. We'll do the hard things, say the hard things, ask the hard things. But I promise you, you will go out in this culture and you will be shamed, you'll be scorned, and you will be laughed at. And that is where I think the persecution of the church is going to come. And I'll end on this idea. I wrote an article some years ago, and it's been republished a couple of different places, but the five stages of religious persecution, and they're well underway right now, because it all starts with this thing. You are not just a strange person for believing in this crazy cross stuff. You are immoral. You must be destroyed. You must be silenced. You must be out of the public square, out of the public schools. You have to go away. Now, the stages of persecution are these, and I'm just going to list them. I'm not going to describe them, because you can read the article. Stereo you start with stereotyping the targeted group. Aren't they a bunch of yahoos? Aren't they a bunch of silly idiots? All right? And then you vilify the targeted group for alleged crimes and misconducts. Now, any large group's going to have some, right? But you magnify those things, right? And again, you continue to stab away at their reputation. And then after you've, uh, if you will, you've, uh, you've laughed at them by stereotyping them and vilifying them, then you marginalize them. 
Okay? Uh, you, you start to see them as something that needs to be at the edges. You remove prayer from the schools and so on. Uh, you next go on by criminalizing the targeted group or its works. Welcome to the HHS mandate. And then you just do the outright persecution. You start arresting them and you start, uh, when, they start when, they don't violate your, when they violate your silly laws. There's going to come a day where we just have to simply say to the government, no, we will not do what you say. We will not fund abortions. We will not fund contraception. We just won't do it. And we're going to be penalized. And then we'll refuse to pay the penalty. And bishops are going to go to jail. And it's not that far away. If they have the courage, pray for them. I pray they will. But that's where we are today. Please, don't be afraid. Lift high the cross. The love of Christ proclaim. Till all the world adore his sacred name. Keep lifting up the cross. We've got to get the world reacquainted with the wisdom of the cross. I'll deal with that more next week. Um, okay. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.